0: Support for today's show comes from our friends at Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a new and unique website. You can showcase your work, blog or publish content, sell products and services, or just celebrate yourself with a new website that looks great, works great, and is fully supported by Squarespace's team. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code CRACKED to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey there, Earwolf fan. We've got another show for you that you might be into. It's called Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. You know Gilbert Gottfried from everything from Aladdin to Affleck commercials to some of the best Comedy Central roast jokes ever done. And he brings celebrities like Weird Al, Judd Apatow, and Ira Glass onto his podcast to talk about everything from show business legends to road stories to horror movies to dirty jokes. Check out new episodes of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast every Monday, wherever you listen, like Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Earwolf.com. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also surrounded by authors. Not just because we've gotten to have several of them on the show the last few months, everybody from N.K. Jemisin to Johnny Sun. I'm surrounded by authors because I work here. Cracked staff writes a hell of a lot of books, and we are overdue in celebrating the latest one on this show. Jason Pargin, who writes for Cracked and for the world as David Wong, is our guest today. His new book is called What the Hell Did I Just Read? It's the third installment in the John Dies at the End series. So Dave is back, John is back, Amy is back, Jason's Engaging Funny Supernatural Writing is back in What the Hell Did I Just Read, or as it's better known by its acronym, W-T-H-D-I-J-R. Or, with de jure. Anyway, I had a blast reading Wuth Digger on a lot of levels because in this latest epic, Dave and John and Amy face everything from ghosts to bat-human hybrids to real life in actual America. Because this podcast episode is for everybody. We barely touch on Jason's book, in the content of it, for a lot of reasons. Uh, Some of you haven't read the book, some of you don't want spoilers, some of you do not read books at all because you're a brain in a jar who interacts with the world through podcast listening, and we want to cater to the people and jarred brains who only know Jason as our site's longest-running incredible columnist, and his latest column has a ton of shocking reveals in it, maybe most shocking, your politics have a lot to do with your fear of germs. If you heard last week's episode, we got into the unconscious reasons you believe in ghosts. This week, we're getting into the unconscious reasons you believe in Republicanism, or believe in single-payer health care, or believe we live in a fantastical version of America where Donald Trump got elected by saying what he said and doing what he did, and that is fine somehow. So we're going to pick your brains apart today, America. And as we do that, we will be indirectly celebrating Jason's book, because his columns and books both capture real life. In particular, I think they get it real life in a regular town. No matter how strange the action gets, Jason's books stay grounded in rural America and how it actually is. Jason's character of Dave battles zombies and feeds off magic soy sauce while wondering what it would be like to live in a town that's growing. His other most recent protagonist, Zoe from Futuristic Violence and Fancy Suits, she flees cybernetically enhanced tech bros through a shiny desert skyscraper boomtown while wondering if her part-time job shifts will get covered, and while hoping her mom's trailer park is going to be okay. So when we talk about the rest of America today, we're talking about it with an author who keeps the rest of America on his pages even as the pages erupt with spiders. Along with that, just a side note, I find that a lot of political discussion in the world involves lots of yelling, lots of interrupting, lots of getting hung up on every single little point. We steer clear of all that today. I find that worthwhile as a listener. I'd love to know what you think of that. Anyway, we're going to use that mutual respect to dig into the creepy way that a lot of what you believe in comes from your most biological instincts. So let's dive into it, you filthy animals. Please sit back or sit in vigilant germ fear, hand sanitizing every two minutes. Either way, enjoy this episode with Jason Pargin, the author of Wudiger, better known as What the Hell Did I Just Read. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. We are joined on the phone by the author of What the Hell Did I Just Read, one of the longest time-cracked writers and columnists and everything else, and one of my favorite fellow Bags of Chemicals, Jason Pargin, who writes for the site as David Wong. Hello, Jason.
1: Hello, everybody. Yeah,
0: I'm really glad to have you on for many reasons. One of them is that you just did a new column, Four Creepy Things That Secretly Control Your Personality, and when we've been going back and forth about it, we've found, I think, additional personality controllers from there. But uh, in general, it's it's just fascinating how many little things make us uh, live our entire lives the way we do.
1: Uh, Yeah. And one theory that we're going to kind of zoom in on a little bit more in this episode is specifically there's things about your personality that control your political leanings. That is probably something you've never heard before. Because it's not one of the obvious things like your attitude toward religion or money or race or things like that. It's your attitude toward germs. And this is a theory. (laughs) It is just a theory. But it is one that once you hear it, it becomes so obvious that it's kind of alarming how obvious it is that you'll see it everywhere.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's also, I feel like it being specifically germs is deeply surprising just because I feel like a lot of us believe that, you know, maybe there's one value or another value that determines our politics. But also, I think a lot of us just believe that our politics are determined by us being right. You know, I don't think we'd quite be so bold to put it that way, but we'd be like, no, I I believe in this or that or the other side because it's correct. You know, next question, moving on. It's amazing to me that it would be microbiology instead.
1: Right. And in general, this is, and this is a theme that I hit on in my books because I'm writing horror novels for the most part and I find this horrifying but it's the (laughs) idea that there are things that influence your opinions that from inside your own brain it seems like you you can remember the chain of logic that got you there but from the outside it was Lead poisoning or, or a traumatic brain injury. We haven't, not to spoil an upcoming piece of content, but we've got an article in the works that I'm assuming will get done, but it's an interview of someone who had a traumatic brain injury and saw their personality change afterward. They wound up leading a very different life afterward, but, but from within their own head, everything they did made sense still. But from the outside, everyone would say, oh, they they bonked their head, and after that, you know, she was a completely different person. So that's the that's the key, is that a lot of the anxiety in your life is unexamined fear and things that are subconscious that you refuse to acknowledge. So this theory is that your fear of germs colors your worldview in a way that you don't even realize that's what it is it kind of comes in disguise it manifests itself as a general mistrust of other people other lifestyles of crowds kind of like density of population and cities we're going to get into all of that
0: and i feel like it's particularly pernicious and particularly hard to detect because like you say there are ways you could decide a lot of those symptoms of this germ fear are logical. You could be like, no, I'm afraid of waves and waves of immigrants coming into the country because of the economic impact and the cultural impact and other super valid reasons that I believe in as a thinking person. When in actuality, at least some of that, as you say in the article, is probably coming from this like more instinctual worry.
1: Okay. So let me, let me outline how this kind of, Presents itself because if you listen to someone who is like a hardcore social conservative, someone who is strongly against immigration, you know, maybe have some antiquated theories about race or, you know, integration, um, people who are homophobic, who just in generally like fear other cultures, anything like that, listen to them and count the seconds until they either compare another culture to a disease or accuse them all of having diseases. Like Alex Jones, the conspiracy guy, like his big source of profit is he sells supplements on his on infoworld infowars on their website. Yeah, and John Oliver did a whole bit about this mocking them because a lot of it is, you know these days, these refugees bringing you know disease into the country. You, you gotta you gotta arm yourself and your immune system. And he actually got sued because he spread a story that refugees that came into um, Idaho had that the tuberculosis rate had spiked by five hundred percent. And he was forced by the court to retract that claim as part of the, the settlement. But this is always part of it. Donald Trump said this on the campaign trail, that Mexican immigrants were bringing tremendous disease across the border. In 2014, you had the Ebola scare. That was a disease that affected a tiny few number of people, like three or four Americans. But the whole thing was that it was exotic African disease, and it totally became politicized because it's like, see, this is what happens when you open up your borders. You get these crazy African diseases coming in. And then to this day, you can hear like the more extreme televangelists or whatever talking about how AIDS was a punishment from God for homosexuality. And every time there's like a, they're tying disease to morality, assuming that disease is the result of immorality. If you Google the phrase like the plague of Islam, You'll get plenty of commentators talking about Islam is spreading across the world like a plague.
0: I saw it was some kind of YouTube video where somebody was arguing that white people are being slowly bred out of the world, that other races are taking over. And they had a little graphic of the world with stick figures of different racial colors and like the browner stick figures just spread and took over like some sort of map of a pandemic it was incredibly gross and terrible but it, it seems like it's that mindset or that kind of schema
1: yeah every every pandemic movie they've always got that that giant computer on the wall that shows <laughs> like in in 90 days this will be the it, you get same thing in zombie movies like you know in, in x number of days you know four billion people will be zombies they have that in world war z i think the little map of the spread yeah it looked exactly the same like a little stain yeah. that spreads. It's it's an unclean, it's a stain on the pure white, otherwise white world that, as we all know, once existed. Once the world was entirely white. In an article a while back, we do a genre of articles about these oddball scientific experiments that seem to hint at weird things. Like... That one experiment found by putting on a lab coat, your IQ actually goes up a few points because <laughs> you just, you're, you're more confident in your answers, I guess. And you answer things more quickly and your score goes up. And what it was, they found that they could make people be less racist by just having them wash their hands first.
0: Yeah, it's, it's um, stunning. Amazing. And I guess good?
1: Uh, the theory that came about as it's being referred to now is the germ theory of democracy. And this is where someone has put all this together and said, this explains everything. That cultures from parts of the world, usually closer to the equator, that had historically a higher rate of infectious disease, and where that was more of a day-to-day concern over the centuries, they tend to instinctively be more mistrustful of strangers, more mistrustful of other cultures, they tend to be more stringent about policing sexual morality, you know, about virginity because, again, fear of STDs, that sort of thing, re- really being very strict about controlling women and, and you know who they have sex with. Um, they tend to be more nationalistic because it, they have these practices, these tribal practices of announcing to each other that I'm in the safe group. So they're very flamboyant in their display of the flag on the back of the pickup truck or, or whatever. If you ask those people now, how do you feel about germs? They're not any more likely to say they're germaphobes than anybody else. But when you do an experiment, when you show them a picture of something gross, of something rotten, they react more strongly than more liberal types do. And they say that that is the theory is that that is simply a leftover of people becoming fiercely tribalistic because once upon a time... You had immunity to the diseases in your own tribe, but no immunity to the ones that a tribe you had never contacted before. So that through history of encountering strangers means death and sickness, that it became built into the culture that our people are clean, their people are filthy, And so the stereotype of filthy foreigners and filthy foreign countries and, uh, you know, uh, other countries like their sanitation and and that's like a moral failing that their sanitation is poor and that their lives have less value because they're just living in filth. You know, they're basically like rats. That's where that comes from. That has just been handed down and down the way things are handed down in cultures.
0: I can see how that would be such a strong force in a culture and, and so hard to let go of or move past just because the history of medicine, a lot of the really exciting developments in it feel very recent. Like Until not that long ago, there would just be savage epidemics all of the time, especially before we had good sanitation in cities and before we understood just germs themselves. And so it makes total sense that A culture would really bake into itself that we need to just do these things that close us off a bit and protect us a bit because it's better than most of us suddenly dying of something.
1: Yeah. And the the other part of the theory is that these cultures tend to gravitate toward more authoritarian like rulers, because you can imagine in in like a true crisis epidemic situation, that's where you're going to get like tight control, like like martial law. And that's where you're more likely to look to someone saying, hey, save us from, save us from this. And so they point out that Hitler's rise occurred right after the Spanish flu tore through Europe. And then he comes to power and is comparing the Jews. He he does both. He compares the Jews to a disease and he accuses them of having diseases. And that was one of his first talking points. Like he arrived right at a moment of history when a pandemic wasn't a theoretical thing people had yeah. you know big mass graves full of bodies they had just seen this occur and it's easy now to get to get very detached from that to, you know that there was a time when before we knew anything about what germs were like you were just helpless you know you yeah. to in, in an epidemic like this there was nothing you could do
0: one of the my favorite weird things about that is that there's a kind of a through line in history of even diseases just being named after specific countries or groups in a way that is totally unfair like that was the spanish flu for no particularly good reason they just named it after the spanish and there's german measles and like, there have been various times when one group said this disease is named after this other group of people when it's just germs in humans that's all it is
1: yeah and that was actually part of the the other countries that were getting hit by it they were hiding it because it was in the middle of this was world war 1 through world that whole period yeah. there were tensions across europe countries wouldn't admit they had been weakened by it but somehow spain got unlucky <laughs> and, <laughs> and so it is forever the spanish flu as if they invented it right. or 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 started it somehow
0: yeah like the king of spain founded it or something it's crazy
1: like everything about the AIDS epidemic, which I remember vividly because I was in middle school when they first, you know, I was born in 1975. So it was in the mid to late 80s when they finally admitted that it was happening. And there were two elements of that that everyone really hit home because, it, you know, like the Reagan administration famously wanted to do nothing about this and couldn't understand why they should care. And one was that it only affected gays and drug users and the other part was that it came from Africa because of somebody got it from a monkey somehow, probably through, everyone joked, having sex with a monkey. So you had the the double whammy of it only affects the other group. It only affects this other group due to their impure behavior, right? Yeah. And that it came from exotic Africa, which this is what we get forever going to Africa because that's the filthy hellhole that... Clean civilization is over here, and Africa is just this very filthy place where they eat out of the same bowl they poop in, probably, or all the things I heard when I was a kid. It was basically like, never leave America. It's just terrible over there.
0: I feel like also part of that mindset is aimed to just make us feel exceptional and feel superior and special and like, oh, we're the the ones running a country properly that doesn't have these raging diseases, even though there will be epidemics of public health crises all the time. It see it seems particularly tribal in a way that like those extreme examples i feel like people were more aware of but it's so fascinating that we're less aware of the the kind of more low-key version
1: yeah and this is something that i noticed this is not part of the theory but there's a separate theory that someone noticed that I, it seems again obvious in retrospect They believe that belief in a one vengeful God kind of helped bring old tribal societies together, right? Because the idea was, it was like, we're all subject to judgment. So where up to that point, everyone lived in little pockets of, you know, small packed groups. And that this fear of a one vengeful God that was the God of everyone, that that kind of caused them to cooperate, which is what made civilization take off, right? Because we could cooperate in larger and larger groups. And religion sort of unified people in that way. Uh, We we don't think of it that way. We think of religion as being an excuse for people to kill each other, but once upon a time, simply someone being from a different family was enough to kill each other. So uniting families and groups who did not know each other, but they were both both a member of the same religion, that was a reason to not murder them when you then read the bible or read any like religious text and see how often that vengeful god punishes them with a plague yeah and how they baked in the fear of germs into that so that if there's sickness in your community it means you've run afoul of god and this is what's waiting for you and in the book of revelation this is one of the horsemen of the apocalypse the pestilence that you know will come when god finally unleashes judgment on the earth You can actually, I think, see them using that fear of the other, using it as a way to unite people, saying that, well, actually, as long as you follow our rules, as long as you don't eat the unclean animals, as long as you do all these things, then God will not unleash the plague upon you. And so this was a reason when you encountered the other tribe to not automatically distrust them as guys. It's like, well, no, we're both under God's protection.
0: I hadn't thought about how much the Bible, you mentioned like, oh, out to Revelation, there's diseases and plagues and things. And then that makes me think of as far back in it as Exodus, like Egypt is being hit with plague after disease, after animal outbreak, because they have angered this deity that across the entire book has been uh, in charge of things.
1: Right. And it also brings about like that just world theory where it's like, Therefore, if you are suffering from a disease, it means you've, you've run afoul of the rule somehow. Like, it's not yeah. just a random thing. It it means that you, this person who got sick and died, this person has leprosy. It's because they're being, they're being punished.
0: Right. Possibly the least scientific idea in the world. It's that one always stuns me. And even, and I'm glad you brought up that trope before where people were saying, oh, people got AIDS because they have angered God somehow. Like, that it's so cartoonish to me. And yet you're right that there are these other kind of more slippery ways that people have brought up that kind of idea into the present day. Like Alex Jones saying the refugees brought tuberculosis to Idaho.
1: Right. I think like immediately some people are going to ask, well, like why, why do so many of the racists I know, why are they also like really filthy people? (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and again, the point is, we're not saying there's a political party of germaphobes. We're saying that if you go back far enough, enough generations, habits and attitudes that they developed to defend against disease, you know, culture gets handed down. You teach it to your kids, they teach it to their kids, they teach it to their kids. Like the things that you're not born instinctively knowing that stuff echoes down a thousand years later. That's why we have the same Bible, you know, 1500 years after they put it together. Like, so those things are kind of dull, in many cases, just dull echoes of what was there trying, not knowing what Germans were, them trying to fight like uncleanliness and just developing a mistrust of other cultures. So today... It bleeds through in, like, the metaphors we use, and it sometimes bleeds through in openly saying these immigrants are bringing diseases. But in a lot of cases, it's not not that. It's an instinctive, overdeveloped sense of disgust. Because your sense of disgust is there to protect you, as all of us know from having seen that Pixar movie, Inside Out. You know, and so the sense of disgust doesn't just manifest itself as, oh, the the monkey at the zoo has thrown his feces at me i'm i'm unhappy with this yeah it manifests itself in all sorts of ways it manifests itself in seeing two men on the street you know kissing each other like the, it's something you feel in your in your gut it's something you feel just when people are desecrating a flag in some way they're soiling it they're disrespecting it, it it's it's anything where They're not following society's strict rules. It's women sleeping around, even if they're using birth control, even if everyone's using protection, it's still she's a filthy slut. She's a dirty whore. Like it's gotta be, you have to believe she's she's been made dirty somehow. Even if there's no germs there, it doesn't matter. It lives as like a metaphor in your mind so that anyone who doesn't seem to be following the rules. Anyone who seems to be from a different tribe, there's just an instinctive gut level fear. And fear, when you don't examine why you're afraid, it turns into hate later on. That's how hate works.
0: And one thing magnifying all that, which is another thing you've written about for the site, is the concept of the monkey sphere. The idea that there's only a limited amount of people that we can think of as Specific individuals who we know well, and then everyone else, we just don't have the mental horsepower or emotional ability to deal with it. Instinctively, it's very easy to see almost everybody else as the other. And then if they're doing something that upsets us on top of that, we're we're it seems like we're pretty instinctually conditioned to just go ahead and write them off.
1: Yeah, and, and that's I realize that word you used is nonsense to someone who hasn't read the article. Oh <laughs> the, yeah. It's it's monkey sphere, like a sphere like a globe. The the article's based on there's an anthropologist named Robin Dunbar who came up with a theory called Dunbar's number. And it's really simple. It's just that you know, they were looking at different animals that form societies, you know, that form groups or herds, right? What they found was there's a specific part of the brain that is how, in, how developed that part of the brain is compared to, to the other parts dictates how large their tribes are. Which makes sense because you have to develop brain power to keeping track of who's in the group and keeping track of their status, Because that stuff matters. So what they found was you could take one species of primate and where they form groups of 30 and then you could find another species that only forms groups of 12 and you could see that that part of the brain was less developed in one than the other. In humans, the way our brains are built, it looks like our ideal group size is about 150. And the broad idea is that we obviously... Culture advanced the invention of cities and countries and nations that happened much too quickly for our brains to physically evolve, to adapt to it. Cause it's very recent in our evolutionary history that we started doing this. Yeah. So his theory was talking about the ideal number of humans. We the, really, the maximum we can keep track of is about 150. My article called what is the monkey sphere was expanding that to say, actually, it seems like this explains everything about everyone all the time because so much of our anxiety is based on the fact that you're living in a city, working in a company, functioning in a group that's so many infinitely times larger than 150 that almost every destructive behavior we have in terms of racism, in terms of social anxiety, so much of it comes down to Us trying to process a world that's too big for our brain because we evolved in small hunting groups and tribes, and now suddenly you're living in a city of three million people and trying to make people understand why you shouldn't put this chemical in the trash. It's like, well, what (laughs) difference does it make? Which, if you were only one of 150 people on a landscape, it wouldn't matter what you threw away. It wouldn't matter how you behave on a, a subway or whatever. But when, you're, when that chemical you put in the trash is three million people all doing that, suddenly you've ruined the landscape and everyone dies. So yeah. trying to make people understand larger-than-life issues that only exist because there's millions and millions of us we develop a bunch of very dumb coping mechanisms, <laughs> where we will have we have to take entire categories of other people and declare them to be one person. Like when we think of Africa, we think of a filthy brown person in, in a shanty. Like we don't we don't realize there's metropolises there. We don't even think that the Middle East is parts of it are in Africa. Like we, we just because we can't conceive of all the, those as individuals. There's a point where we're just tapped out. So what you said about the urge to write people off, that's one of the most important and one of the most common manifestations of this. Because you have a bias to want to write people off. You want to not have to think about people because you're overloaded. So if you have an excuse to shut someone out of your life, out of your country, to lock someone out of your world, in many cases you'll take it
0: because even even when you say we just have one conception of Africa like we don't even have the mental space or horsepower to separate Africa into a couple of different regions or cultures and there's so many you know and we just say okay this entire continent I'm going to I'm going to file that as one thing and then I'm also going to file my brother as one thing and my parents as two more things <laughs> that's just where we're at as a group another element of that that monkey sphere being Something that it's particularly terrifying to me that the monkey sphere is is a product of we mentally can't keep up with our groups getting so much larger from living in cities because we've had agriculture for about 10,000 years and we've had at least towns for a very, very long time. And we're still those centuries are not enough time for us to easily cope with that. And then in the meantime, people today, we're supposed to use Twitter properly immediately it seems like an impossible task given that our brains can't deal with civilization as effectively as we'd like them to.
1: Uh, right, and, and we could do an entire episode on how this makes it impossible to function as a normal person yeah. on the internet. <laughs> because if you've got if you've got an Instagram and you have 30,000 followers, not to dig into a bunch of insider business stuff, but one of the hardest things about doing what we do or trying to produce things for an audience is if you make something and then you get like three complaints about it right away, you perceive that as, Oh my God, this just, it's a mass rebellion. (laughs) Everything's gone to hell. It's like, Oh, the the inbox is blowing up from people enraged about this. This, this did not go over well. And because you don't think in terms of, well, you know, 120,000 people read it and three complained, like maybe that's representative, maybe it's not, maybe, you know, you don't know. But you're always trying to categorize in your brain how did this go over with the audience, quote-unquote. And it's like it actually went over 120,000 different ways. (laughs) And (laughs) if those people had listened to it on a different day, in a different mood, in a different time of day, it would have gone over differently still. Trying to act like you know what the audience is thinking and what they want all the time is nuts, but we now live in a society in which everyone is in that entertainer, whether they do it professionally or not, it doesn't matter. You've got high school kids with 2,000 Facebook followers. You tell me they're not posting with an audience in mind. Like you tell me they're right. not posturing on their Instagram. They're not trying to frame things a certain way, trying to look a certain way, because not because of how they look to their friends, but because of how they look to this faceless audience out there. That messes with your head in ways that we've just barely begun to discover because it's brand new. It, it changes so quickly that we're running on very old hardware. That <laughs> it was It's like if you try to download a game on your 12-year-old laptop and you see how it tries to run it, and that's it. That's, that is what society is. It's a modern, like the fully blown out FPS AAA game that we're trying to run on a laptop that was made in like 1996. Uh, it has, it has four, four kilobytes of RAM, and it's just chugging along. Like so much of what we don't understand about, well, where's all the hate coming from or why these people? It's like, well, to be frank... I have known people who had, like, a very friendly view of the world and believed, like, they were very progressive hippie types. Like, right up until they got assaulted and then suddenly became very, like, anti-crime. They didn't have a more complex view of the world. They were just picturing the world, the one person in the world, as being good instead of bad. It wasn't that they had a nuanced view at all. It's that they had a naive view when the reality is, yeah, there's actually all sorts of bad people out there and also good people and also lots of people in between. And so much of your worldview depends on who you happen to have run into up to that point in your life. Sure,
0: yeah. I find that a lot of times when people give advice, they're really just giving advice to themselves and it's it's being passed on to you. I don't think they realize it, but and a lot of times it'll become clear like, Oh no, they just had one kind of interaction with one person in the business or in life. And so then they're just telling me that everyone operates this way.
1: Yeah. Because you're, you're forced to, you're forced to generalize. Yeah. But the thing is about now with as much like information as available to us, you can find your example if you want it. If your gut instinct is to believe that the rest of the world is filthy you can find plenty of examples. There's there's rivers in India that are choked with garbage. You can go look at those pictures all day. You know, there yeah. are countries that have poor sanitation because they're they're impoverished. They don't have the money for sanitation. Like you can you can convince yourself of whatever you want. You know, if you want to believe that the inner city is full of crime you could go on Breitbart. You could go on any of these websites, and it's just a steady stream of another, you know, white woman has been raped by a black man. Like you can get all the examples you want to feed your narrative, because ultimately, you don't want to find out you're wrong about uh, these other groups. That's that's awful. Like finding out that your instincts are incorrect, that's a miserable experience. You want to be reminded: yes, we're clean; they're dirty.
0: Yeah. The most prominent example that jumps to mind for me is the president when he's like, oh, Texas and Florida were ready for hurricanes. But Puerto Rico, a country that is one concept to me, was not ready for the hurricane. And that's why everything's so wrecked there. Like, this is just one thing I've decided I know about that entire group of people and places is true Tim.
1: Yeah. And there was a similar narrative around Katrina because New Orleans is a lot of black people famous yeah. for its culture with jazz things like that that's we outside of that region we like i personally think of louisiana as either being swamp with people like living literally in a swamp or it's new orleans and it's it's just a non-stop it's it, new orleans is a span of like 3 blocks and there's always a parade going on Right, right. (laughs) With people playing jazz music. That is New Orleans to me. That is my in-depth. So when the disaster struck and there's all this talk about, oh, these people, there's looting or these people aren't helping themselves to the middle America. It's like, well, yeah, of course. What do these people know other than Mardi Gras all the time? They don't know how to take care of themselves when the power goes out they don't know how to hunt for they're not real americans
0: yeah they should have developed industries besides bead throwing or whatever which is ridiculous (laughs) it's a real place
1: (laughs) yeah your precious plastic beads aren't saving you now are they and there's like this it's like why are you mad at new orleans like you like to spend a couple of days there in february and then that's it, I saw actual op eds afterwards. Like, you know what? Why don't they just abandon the city and just just forget about it? Like, no why way. it was always just a lost cause. It is taxing to care about things. <laughs> it is taxing to care about people. Yeah. So if you give me an excuse to not care about somebody, I'm gonna take it. And I think on our side, it cracked being the the leftist propaganda outlet. That we've turned it into
0: right on purpose, decidedly yes.
1: Our flaw is, I think, we are very quick to write people off forever based on some perceived offense. Where you can have somebody who has been a progressive for twenty straight years, and then they get caught saying something offensive or disrespecting a woman. It's like, oh well, I knew they were trash all along, and that's it. They're not gone from my mind. The idea that this is a person that is imperfect. And that has some progressive ideas and some regressive ideas and that has moods and that says terrible things and also good things and that may be a hero to some people and not to others. It's like, no, I I, I don't want to have to process all of that. It's one strike and you're out. They, they did the bad thing. And so now they're not in the tribe anymore and I don't have to worry about them anymore.
0: As far as our perception of one person in the world and one event is such a landmark thing that almost feels like a storytelling based thing. Like it's how it would work in a narrative show where we have a character and then the writers have them do a bad thing because now we want that character to become villainous or we have a bad character do one good thing because now that character is going to be a positive person. And I think we see that across pop culture and maybe that influences the way we see people in the real world.
1: Yeah, because in fiction you have th- that's why we like simple like morality tales because you've got the good people and the bad people and that you've got the light side and the dark side of the force and they call themselves the light side and the dark side and that's the way we wish it worked. You know, that black and white sense of morality, it's the exact same deal. It's it's, you know, it's even white the color of cleanliness and purity and the dark side or the black side is that's the color of filth and mold and that's the way we wish it was like this happened after all through like the war on terror like it was framed very clearly that islam hates the united states and is it's a clash of cultures the west versus islam and then you start to dig into it and they're explaining well part of the problem after the war in iraq was the kurds are at you know are at war with the sunnis and the shiites and so they're all struggling for for control and it's like who like which ones are pro which one which one is the ones which ones are the americans which ones are pro america it's like well none of them it's yeah. like you understand the middle east is a primarily it's like iran and then these surrounding countries and it's these majority sunni populations versus majority shiite They don't spend all day thinking about America. They spend all day, like, fighting, you know, with each other over control. And then Iraq has the entire, you know, the Kurdish region that, you know, they have attempted to wipe out multiple times. Like, you have to understand, there's not... And each time, it was the same thing with later on with the Syrian civil war. And it's like, well, okay, so which... Which side is the American side, the rebels or or the the Syrian government? It's not clear which one is is fighting for freedom. It's like, well, neither of them are. It's not like that. They have their own things that aren't about us. And it's like, well, that can't be. Since there's only two factions on Earth, there's pro-freedom and pro-dictatorship and slavery and ignorance. Which side are they on? Just tell me. It's like, well, that would be great if it was like that. You would think the people on the evil side, once they realize they were on the evil side, would probably like leave because it's like, who wants to be the bad guys in the story?
0: Right. Yeah. That,
1: that dictates our foreign policy. Like, I think one of the flaws of Donald Trump is that he has he does that thing where everyone is either my best, best friend or my worst enemy. Like he can't, he seems to have nothing in the middle.
0: Yeah. And it also seems driven by who he's hung out with lately the brief windows when he's liked obama are when he hung out with obama and they like shook hands and had a nice conversation then he's like yeah that guy's great and then he loses it immediately
1: it's proximity yeah <laughs> likewise a lot of times if just hanging around people changes your your view of them yeah um, and usually it's finding out there's exactly one gay member of the family who's out of the closet that can make an entire family stop being homophobes. Like that's it. They just needed one that was close to them, or even one on TV that they sort of like. And I was like, "Wow, well, I like that Ellen." It's like <laughs> <laughs> that. I Ellen. guess I guess my yeah. my entire upbringing believing that these people were the moral rot that would cause God to bring about the apocalypse, that was overturned by one like somewhat friendly talk show host who was not a demon uh, and was not spreading disease to all of her her guests. I like, oh, I guess she's not so bad. I guess them gays aren't so bad. Putting one face on it made the entire category flip. You know, eventually they're probably going to meet like a really bad gay person. And I worried that their entire opinion of, of it We'll flip again because it's like, well, yeah, I was uh, this uh, this gay guy waited on me at the restaurant. And he was incredibly rude. Those gays are mean. I'm like, no, that guy was mean. <laughs> but we will we will always process the world this way. A lot of society is a series of hacks to get around this. Like, in order to get you to care about a subject, we have to try to put a face on it to like personalize it. And people working in social services have to do this all the time because no one wants to give up tax money for a bunch of poors or a bunch of disabled people. So you've got to get a PR campaign out there with, like, a disabled person, a refugee, someone who's innocent. And you've got to pick that person carefully because if they're kind of a jerk, your whole movement will die. Because if you're one example, the one face they could fit into one of their 150 slots... If you screw that up, you're, you're doomed. This is why during the civil rights movement, they had to choose so carefully to get Rosa Parks because the previous woman who wouldn't move to the back of the bus, she had had, I remember what the issue was, she had an underage pregnancy or something. They're like, no, we've got to have, it's got to be a face that no one can get mad at.
0: You have to work so hard to calibrate these things for people's experience of them. Yeah. Do you remember, there's a senator from Ohio, his name's Rob Portman, And he is a Republican senator who was opposed to gay marriage. And then his child came out. And so then he prominently changed his position on the issue and moved away from it. And I think the narrative around that was some people were like, oh, he's betrayed our conservative cause. Other people said he doesn't belong in our liberal cause because he's only doing this because of his kid. But it seems like the basic thing is people are just not that smart like they just sometimes that's how change will come to them and i don't know i guess we accept it when we get it
1: and maybe high schools are not like this anymore but anyone who was a member of like one social tier and then tried to change it tried to move like to a different group or tried to move up there's very strong resistance to that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this this is what the movie Carrie was about Aside from the fact that she could do telekinesis And, and kill people with her mind It was about a girl Who is like on the lowest on the social ladder Trying to move up And how they reacted To that because again These people have been neatly categorized In your mind and it messes with you When they change It's unpleasant to change your view of people Support for today's
0: show comes from Squarespace. Hey, you're a fan of Cracked. You're a person who is web-savvy and very, very, very cool. That's what we find with 100% of you. Now, you ought to have a website to show off your web-savviness, right? I think you should. And if you want to use beautiful templates by world-class designers, if you want it to be optimized for mobile right out of the box, because everybody's doing this on their phone these days— Use Squarespace's tools to help you do that. They also have analytics to help you grow the site in real time, and they have an award-winning 24-7 customer support team to help you if anything goes funky. And you might think, oh, it's just too hard to build a website. No, there is nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever with Squarespace. You're someone who uses the Internet and belongs on the Internet. Get on the Internet with Squarespace. You can head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch... Because you're cool enough to listen to this show, you can use the offer code CRACKED to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That is Squarespace.com, offer code CRACKED. Support for the CRACKED podcast comes from Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. And take it from me, it's a great mattress. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night, and it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that-sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is you can be sure you're purchased with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. I have gone through this entire process, and I shouldn't call it going through the process, because it's mostly just delightful. You know the movie Interstellar, when they have the robot that is just sort of a slab, and it's very helpful and charming and easy to go along with? It's what the Casper box is like. like. It just arrives, it's very cubic, it's very easy to deal with, and when you open it, a mattress just sort of magically flips out of it in a way that also comes with very handy instructions that makes it easy for you to set up and lay down on your bed so you can lay down on it all the time very comfortably. Start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. You can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com cracked and using cracked at checkout. That's casper.com cracked. Offer code cracked for $50 off your mattress purchase and the chance to sleep as easily as I do. Terms and conditions apply.
1: You brought up something I want you to expand on a little bit, like how this ties into the urban and rural divide.
0: It's been written about in various ways by various people. One of my favorites is a crack column by Lowe Nunning called Six Big Differences That Turn City Dwellers Into Liberals. And it's various ways that just the basics of city life make you someone who supports more of the the set of things that we've come to understand as liberal ideas. And of course, Jason, you've done amazing stuff for the site about the overall way that it's not really a red state, blue state thing anymore. It's a urban versus rural. That's what the real divide is. And tying into the germ theory you've been bringing up, one thing that Lowy brings up in the column is that if you live in a big city, you're just exposed to more germs day to day. You either need to become comfortable with it, or you self-select as someone who can handle being around germs and so you live in a city because it's something that you can take its part and parcel of being just around more people more of the time, and especially people who are struggling in an urban environment, who are homeless or ill or just having a hard time of it.
1: The, the rural versus urban divide if people didn't listen to the previous episode on the subject, you can go look at a map of the election results. And instead of looking at a state map, look at a county by county map. Where it will be red will be Trump and then blue will be Hillary. Yeah. And what America is basically a sea of red with these little splotches of blue and those splotches are the cities. Right. It's Chicago, New York, you know, you can go go to, to Texas, you know, Austin, you know, came out for Hillary, like where you get people packed together, they suddenly become liberals. We have people living out on the country out in the countryside or in some cases in the suburbs, they tend to become conservative. Which is one of the weirder things, but there is such a distinct cultural divide. And in the article I wrote before the election, the divide in terms of lifestyle is radically different. The type of media they consume, the type of food they consume, the age at which they get married, the age at which they have their first child, how religious they are or aren't, what type of religions they are, their suicide rate, the unemployment rate. Life is radically different. It is two different worlds, side by side, in America. And I have lived in both. I grew up in a very small town. I now live in a large city. And I have gotten more and more liberals time has gone on. But I will say this. I live in a famously clean city. And when family from back home visit... They all, without exception, comment on how clean it is. Because the reason why you could not force me to live in New York <laughs> is I perceive it as being a filthy place. Like I perceive it as smelling like urine all of the time. I just <laughs> think of like the, the sidewalks as being filthy and covered in, in gum and, and dog crap. I just instinctively think of it as, I'm fine that other people want to live there. I would not. Like, the idea of living in a place where I perceive that the air is dirty, like L.A., like, I still think of it as being, like, a lot of smog. Or just in general, like, that is a big thing for me. I moved to a city, and I'm living in a neighborhood that looks like a small town where I'm at. There's a lot of green, there's a lot of trees... It looks like the suburbs. Even it's just a section of the city. It happens to look like that. I absolutely, due to my upbringing, where I'm from, how I was raised, I absolutely have a gut level revulsion at a lot of things that apparently would seem silly to someone who was raised in in a city. And you're from? Were you raised in Chicago?
0: Yeah, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs, and that's that's relatively urban, but it is very, very cleaned up, especially I'm from around some of the most conservative and squared away suburbs. So they keep they keep the lawns very nice. They keep the space very nice. Like we would have the police check on us if we were playing frisbee too loudly. You know what I mean? It was very (laughs) calm. And then uh, yeah, and then I live in LA now and have lived in New York City in the past. And LA feels relatively clean to me. I think I also grew up without the terrible smog that the city had in a lot of the middle and late 20th century being so much of a thing. Like they kind of, it seems like in the 90s and into, the, into now, cleaned it up quite a bit. So I, that didn't weigh on me as much. But New York City, like it is, when I first moved there, like the first time I visited, we got off of the subway and saw someone laying kind of over the railing of the subway stop probably dying they were in extreme distress like we went and got a police officer we tried to help them out uh when i first moved there one of the first things i saw in the subway system was a public masturbator they don't really have alleys so a lot of trash will just be piled onto the sidewalk in big bags and you just smell it and you're around it and there's a lot of grime and there's a lot of People suffering, and you need to be okay with that in your day to day and used to it in your day to day if you're going to live there. But I think then once you get past that and once you push through that, there's also a lot of great things about New York. And also, you're without knowing it, unless you know this germ theory, you're becoming someone who is very on board with a liberal and inclusive society. Because you there's no better training for getting over this instinctive revulsion that that is in our heads,
1: yeah, and yeah. I yeah that's that's really interesting to me because even like a lot of the people who see New York as being filthy, like they live in a place that may objectively be dirtier, like they may have like statistically more garbage in their yard, but I get the sense that. They tend to, I guess they focus more on like the behavior aspect of it. Like the behavior is filthy or the people are violent or people are rude. Like the, the fear of rudeness is a big thing. It's their inability to police their habits is like, it's more of a broad thing that like these people don't have like self-respect or, or whatever. And no matter how like poor you are, as long as you've got somebody you can look down on, that they're dirty because of their genes. They're dirty because of their souls. They're dirty because of... Like, you can always find another metaphor that makes them dirty and you the clean one.
0: There's all kinds of ways people can make that leap, especially with New York. Like, I remember my first bodega experiences shopping there, realizing that, at least with the ones I went to, oh, a lot of the time the person running this will be on the phone, often in another language, The entire time I'm dealing with them. And I realized very quickly, this doesn't ruin my ability to buy stuff at the bodega, I can just get the stuff and they keep doing their thing. And we're great. But if you let that upset you, it's pretty upsetting. Like it's the least service minded approach to dealing with a customer, except that it's good service, you're still getting everything. But that that kind of stuff can really jump out. And it's also really, really relative between cities, the comedian Hannibal Burris, who's from Chicago, like Chicago, Chicago, and then moved to New York. He did an interview once shortly after he came to New York and they were like, how are you enjoying Brooklyn? Are you settling in? Okay. And he said, yeah, I mean, the only main difference is there's a bunch of trash in the streets. Like Chicago, we have alleys, so we just keep it there. But I guess you guys just kind of walk over it all the time. And that's very weird of you. That's a very strange cultural decision to me. And he's from another huge city that I mean, Chicago's nicknamed the second city. It's templated off of New York in a lot of ways. But even within that, it's very different.
1: Me and my wife recently went to, there's a lot of restaurants here in this kind of hipster neighborhood that are very dog friendly. We went out to eat at a place at this little cafe and had our dog with us. We'd been out walking and we're eating. Next to us was a group of uh, Japanese youths who were speaking to each other in Japanese and were you know enjoying the city but they were looking at us like we had brought an alligator to the restaurant <laughs> it was clear from their mannerisms from what they were saying to each other that they thought we were insane because they had just stopped at this place presumably like they you know they were tourists they didn't look, didn't look like they lived there and we're like in Japanese like those people have a dog at the restaurant because it wasn't it, this must not be a thing and i know we're going to get comments from people saying actually you could bring your dog into any restaurant in japan you're talking about i'm only speaking of my own experience and it's very possible that due to my own racism i don't they were from a different asian country but i i perceived they were japanese and that they thought that this was like the most disgusting, unsanitary thing anyone had ever done, which it objectively probably is. I have this filthy wolf descendant at my feet while I'm, you know, eating nachos. Like in terms of germs, that's probably not like that probably is objectively a disgusting thing to do. But to me, like I even though I'm disgusted by other cultures, there's always someone out there to be disgusted by me everyone assumes their own level of disgust is the right one. Right. And that everyone below them is a savage and everyone above them is like a, a prissy elitist. And so like, I want to sit there and say, Oh, haha, These uptight foreigners don't know what, what a great dog I have. And they're weirded out by it. But meanwhile, you know, if I go to a grocery store in Alabama and see one person who's barefoot like I'm gonna be telling that story for the rest of the month. It's like, a ah, guy. It's it's a it's in a post-apocalypse. You got people walking around shirtless and barefoot, and there are these filthy hillbillies everywhere. And, and like it's a, a matter of degrees, the actual amount of filth that's happening. But we've all got it calibrated where it's exactly like no, I'm right, and the rest of the world must be measured against my against my standard.
0: It's so instinctive. And I think it also, it covers so much of every little thing we do and every little way we live. There's a study out of UT Austin a few years back, where they looked at all kinds of different things that liberals and conservatives in America do. And one thing they did is they looked at 76 different college student bedrooms. And they found that conservatives had more orderly rooms. They also had rooms with better lighting. It, there was just more light in the space. And then liberals had messier rooms. They also had more books and they had more cultural art travel kind of knickknacks and things around. And that might all sound very natural, but it it's sort of amazing that in the spaces where we live, that we spend the most time in, we still iterate these very little differences that would seem strange to someone of even the same culture, just slightly different politics. Everyone's had that experience of going into someone else's place or someone else's apartment and being like, oh, they live very differently than I do. Like they just arrange their living room there's much more or less dust than i'm used to there's much more or less weird art they have these tiny pillows that i don't find comfortable but they're into you know and it, it uh every little thing we do can jump out that strongly as oh this is the other this is different
1: yeah and if they've got the furniture where it's not pointed at the television
0: oh so we think
1: those people are sociopaths <laughs> like they'll have. They'll have the sofa, and then the TV will be directly like above the armrest of the sofa. Like you can only watch it if you're turning your head perfectly to the side. <laughs> it's like, is this a prank? What are you, what are you <laughs> trying for here? Yeah, and I and, and I always love those studies where they we filmed seventy six college students in their bedrooms. <laughs> this is what we observed. We watched them for months. We also noticed that the conservatives do not sleep as restfully as the as the liberals do they also tend to wear less clothing to bed it's
0: one study with one sample and i'm always curious if there's like one weird outlier in the group so it's like oh all conservatives are axe murderers turns out because of like one guy you know but it seems like it's speaking to something you notice that across people at least
1: anecdotally yeah and and that's something that there's lots of to be serious about there's lots of Experiments showing the same thing. Conservatives tend to be neat freaks. Liberals tend to be a little bit messier. I get anxiety if there's too much clutter in the house. I'm not. I'm not a neat person. But like, if you came to my house, you'll notice there's like a lot of empty floor where it seems like maybe another piece of furniture should be. Aside from the fact that shopping for furniture is a living hell, I, yeah. I like open floor, floor space. I don't like feeling crowded. I don't like feeling like there's things in my way. I have not seen it. I would be interested to see if there's a difference between liberals and conservatives in how they perceive personal space. I don't like people standing close to me. I don't like standing in line when people are pressed up behind me or directly in front of me. I want space around me. So I could only come to a city because I had a neighborhood where I could get a house with a yard. And I don't have people on the other side of the wall from me, which I couldn't tolerate. You know, when I go to places it's not packed, it's not crowded. If it's if it's some trendy restaurant people are lined up out the door, I just don't go. I'm not going to stand in line with other people up next to me like that. I don't like that. If I see video from the Middle East where personal space is treated differently and they tend to bump into each other a lot, I see that as savage behavior. Lots of the changes I've made in terms of becoming more progressive over the years, so much of it is overcoming my knee-jerk impulse to say, "Well, yeah, but that's just common courtesy." You don't, you don't stand that close to somebody. Like that's a culture where they don't care about each other because they're filthy and they're foreigners, and they they naturally have a hatred for others in their hearts. That's <laughs> like, well, <laughs> you know, if you just met one of these people, it would it would change your mind. It took a lot to get over that, and I feel like I can feel my knee-jerk impulse is not to be an understanding person. It is It is not. I have to make myself do it.
0: And, and I think it's true of all of us. Yeah. Like with all these things we're talking about, it takes mental effort to push through our instincts about the entire population of the world, except for a couple of our friends. And yeah, it is strongest with like fear of germs or danger, you know, but then it also, it comes out in all these little things of oh, those Europeans kiss each other on the cheek when they meet. That's not for me, you know? But if you want to get to know them, maybe you do it.
1: This is going to seem like a tangent, but I briefly wanted to talk about The Walking Dead.
0: Oh, yeah, please.
1: That genre of post-apocalyptic fiction that tends to be about a virus that has wiped out everybody, that shows actually a really good illustration of this because it's the nightmare scenario of a disease has wiped everybody out you can't avoid it. And then the entire concept of the show is running into these other tribes and thinking they're okay at first and thinking they can cooperate with them at first. And then it inevitably falls apart and either finds out they are murderous or the system breaks down in a way that lets the zombies in. A bunch of their friends get infected. Everything that is bound up in there, the fear of infection, the fear of others, the tribalism, the constant speeches about how you know we gotta we gotta pull together if we're gonna we're gonna survive this you we gotta stick together you know that's the only way we're gonna we're gonna overcome and it's either that speech or it's the speech about how we gotta go to war. We gotta wipe out this bad group of people. It is really spelling out this theory in this metaphor of zombies because again look at the zombies they're rotting they're filthy right there's no clean zombies in this show. It's there's stuff oozing out of them. It's a it's a sense of disgust, and the whole world has become disgusting. And it's just us against this world where everyone is a diseased shambling thing. That show takes off on popularity, and the zombie genre takes off on popularity. Right at the same time that you have this undercurrent of worrying about globalization. Mm. Worrying about the jobs going to China, worrying about the jobs going to Mexico. Oddly enough, people don't seem to worry about the jobs going to Canada. They don't worry about the jobs going to England. They don't worry about the jobs going to Germany. They worry about the jobs going to these exotic places with these strange cultures and these or the filthy people taking or something insulting about a Mexican taking your job. Versus saying, oh, the the, the factory moved to uh, Switzerland. Like, it just doesn't hit as hard. Because like, oh, well, yeah, that's the Swiss. You can't beat the Swiss. Like, they'll probably do a better job (laughs) if you think about it. So this undercurrent of this fear of globalization that gave us Trumpism and all that, it's interesting to me that the most popular show was based on this concept of you know, it, it's this entire, it's the entire metaphor spelled out. Like it's the entire history of the world of a small group of people tr- realizing they have to cooperate to survive, but also realizing that one false move means they get the infection and everybody dies.
0: And it's a show that I don't find well-written or well-acted. And that's the most popular show in the world, other than Game of Thrones, probably. And maybe it's probably because it's so compelling on a thematic level. You also picked out as we were emailing about this, that as far as people fearing socialism, it's a fear that there will be inequitable redistribution of things. But with that walking dead lesson they're learning is that they need to cooperate, but they also need to cooperate on a very specific, very limited, very tribal scale. And it seems like socialism, along with globalization, is the scariest force or option opposing that. To those people. It's like, oh no, no, we'd have to cooperate with everyone, and you can't trust the people outside the tribe. They're not the right people to do it with.
1: Right. Because the question you asked was why if there's such an instinctive fear of disease, why don't Republicans support like universal health care? Yeah. Like why aren't these the ones crying out the most for yes, we all need to be care, we all need care. We all need And if you look at the history of any of these programs, like when Obamacare was going on, you would see a lot of Fox News headlines about Obamacare being extended to illegal immigrants. Obamacare covering abortion. See, so you've got the program benefits the outsiders. It benefits the filthy foreigners. It benefits people with bad behavior, the drug addicts, the loose women, that the money is being redistributed and the the medicine is being redistributed from the good people to the bad people to to the unclean people and you kind of saw the same thing after public schools were were desegregated where suddenly the support for public schools started dropping and you started to see them as these broken dysfunctional institutions with crime and everything else and I you know I'm not going to send my kid to that hell hole where there's a bunch of people selling drugs on the playground and all that like a lot of the support for the institutions is only when they perceive that the institutions are for themselves, is for their group.
0: It's such a limited approach to it. Because, yeah, when I was thinking about all that healthcare stuff, there's a TED Talk by, he's a professor named Jonathan Haidt. He's a, a social psychologist at NYU. And he did a TED Talk where he argued that you can look at our morality in terms of how we arrange our politics and how we deal with people as a set of five pillars, and two of the pillars are, one is how much we harm each other or care for each other. We should not hurt each other. We should care for each other. The second pillar is fairness and reciprocity, that society should be just and equitable in terms of what we give to each other, what we receive from each other. And he said that liberals and conservatives believe in both of those pillars deeply. And then he said there's three other pillars. One of them is in-group loyalty, like knowing that your tribe of people and the people around you will be 100% loyalty. Another is respect for authority in and of itself. And another is believing in purity and sanctity as important quality that society needs to maintain. And his argument was that liberals believe the first two pillars, just how much we hurt each other and how fair we are to each other, is enough. We can build an entire society out of that and we can do everything out of that. And conservatives believe that we need all five pillars all put together because otherwise society is going to come apart and because also you'll have the most cohesive and solid society built out of that. And he didn't put a value judgment on either one. He didn't say that one is much better than the other. He even pulls from Hindu tradition and argues that uh, a lot of times Vishnu and Shiva will be depicted as one single god because Vishnu is a preserver and a more conservative kind of approach and Shiva is a more destructive and change-based kind of approach and you need a mix of both to have a society you need a mix of both political perspectives to have a society. It jumped out to me as as sort of a a, a thing that makes sense with this germ theory we've been talking about and something that makes sense in terms of oh, I can see why conservatives would not be so excited about the idea of, oh, if we give everyone health care, everyone's healthier, there's less germs. And also, you know, it's an investment that I think is worth making. But I can see how they would say, no, 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 we need to, society should be fair and we should not hurt each other. But if we're focused enough on our own tribe and our own group and making that as cohesive and solid as we possibly can, that's much more important to having a society itself like putting some kind of healthcare allowance for everybody on top of that that's not so necessary the key thing is to work on our group and our culture and our solid local structure of a society
1: right and this is this could be a whole different episode because there's no political faction that embraces evil right. and and in, in, while <laughs> the other embraces good, they are emphasizing different categories of morality over others. Exactly it, it, to different degrees, because of course liberals also care about in group loyalty to some degree. We see how fiercely they don't want to allow in someone who is progressive on every subject but abortion. It's like no, that that that's it. It's black and white. That's the, that's a deal breaker everyone has deal breakers for the group respecting authority. You know, it depends on whether or not the person in authority happens to agree with your politics, right? The purity and the sanctity, that fifth category seems to be the primary difference between the groups. And the purity is very big among conservatives. And that is seen as an antiquated concern among progressives where I could sit here for the next hour and criticize things. Liberals say For me, the primary weakness in it is I feel like they've gone to a point of acting like when discussing the economy, Republicans act like everything is based on how hard you work, right? Which is objectively not true. There's some people that like there's somebody that has a disability, like it wouldn't matter how hard they work. They can't perform the task they were trained to do. And so it's not their fault. People do get screwed by the system where they tend to act like it's a perfectly just world. Liberals act like there is no such thing as laziness. (laughs) They act like there is no such thing as a poor person who got there by their own choices. They act like there is no such thing as a poor person who had a chance and squandered it or had multiple chances and squandered it. They act like it's all the system. Everyone's a victim of the system. They go too far the other direction. Then it gets back to the purity aspect of it where you're rewarded for living a pure life and it's not just about keeping your hands clean. A pure life means you are being responsible with what you drink, what you smoke, what you put in your body, what you eat, how you take care of yourself, you know, how you maintain your property, do you keep your house clean? Do you, you know, maintain your lawn? Those are all tied into the purity thing. Those are all rituals that you do to prove you've got your life together. Do you have a normal sleep schedule? Do you are you up early in the morning? Like things that they would say even now Those things help you succeed in life. Those are values that will help you succeed in life that liberals tend to mock as old-fashioned 1950s Boy Scout values. But they would say, no, to this day, disciplined, you know, being thrifty in how you spend your money, not spending your money on stupid things, saving your money, just, you know, having respect for yourself, not having sex before marriage because that leads to teen pregnancies, how many careers have gotten derailed because a woman, you know, she's, got a baby now can't go to college she's got a baby at age 17 like all of these things that could have been fixed with this old-fashioned sense of morality that you mock if someone believes that and that's central to their personality and something that's still central to mine to where it's i i struggle to feel sorry for people who i i feel i perceive that they're not trying hard enough if they believe that they can find plenty of examples to support it right like it's not yeah, yeah. I, I so much of what we said in this podcast has made it sound like this is a delusion they're suffering under. It's not always that. In many of the cases, the things they believe in work. These purity behaviors and these beliefs work. You can get ahead. It's just that I feel like there's an artifact of those beliefs that manifests itself as racism, homophobia, resistance to change that is not based on anything logical like it's just a fear of things being different that I think creates a lot of bad side effects but the core of what they're doing isn't necessarily evil it's just we don't understand why they're so big on the purity aspect in when it seems like they'll sacrifice the fairness aspect in favor of it because why should someone be doomed just because they were born on the wrong side of the border Why shouldn't they be able to cross over and get a job here? Like, why? Why just because of by pure chance they happen to be born ten miles the wrong south of where they, you know, of of land that would have belonged to Mexico 150 years ago? They would say, well, yeah, but that person crosses the border. They bring with them their own culture. They bring with them a different idea of what the country should be like, different social norms, and that hurts the society because this person doesn't know our rules.
0: It seems like there's. An argument of we're all humans, and as long as they believe in some of our rules, then like the key things about democracy,
1: then then we'll be all right. We agree on that because Trump, you know, got to where he is by saying horrible things about Mexicans and horrible things about immigrants, right? And a really appealing to the worst in people. Like I, I have trouble with Trump supporters who won't admit that part, but if that person or anyone comes back and says, well, are you suggesting there should be no border at all? Like people should be free to just come and go like, like to define where America stops and where Mexico starts or where it pick any country. Like, do you think that it is impossible for one culture to move into another piece of land and basically steamroll that other culture and erase it so that the good things about that other culture are now gone? If you say, well, no, that's ridiculous, that's paranoia, I can go out in the woods and I can go dig up arrowheads from Native Americans from the people who used to live here. It is possible for a culture to steamroll another culture. Now, to suggest that the one Mexican guy trying to cross the border to come get a job here working construction somehow destroys democracy, and the Lady Liberty is crying at this filth <laughs> that has intruded on her sacred land, that's ludicrous. There is a point in between one and the other where we have to agree. No matter how much we may say otherwise, if I found myself, due to some accident of chance, being the only non-Muslim in this city, I would probably move. I would be deeply uncomfortable with that, not because I hate Mm -hmm. Muslims, but because I'm not a Muslim and I'm in a place where I'm now, I'm not the norm. Their values are different. What they believe is different. And it's clear I'm not one of them. I think there's a threshold where everyone would feel that way at some point. Or if in your neighborhood, for some reason, like a Scientologist opened up a church there and suddenly noticed all of your neighbors are Scientologists, at some point you would start to feel (laughs) weird. Yeah. That's not unreasonable. It, it, it's, you know, so there's a point to where you can make it look like, sound like it's a superstition all you want, but they can say, well, you know that Islamic terrorism is a thing. It, like we haven't had refugees commit crimes in America, but in Europe they have in France. They have, it is a problem there. Like because of our bubble, We don't even want to address those concerns. Like, we that's not even grounds for discussion. It's like, nope, you hate brown people. Period. At some point, you have to have a policy. There is going to be an immigration policy. So, if you're saying we shouldn't be dicks to illegal immigrants, what, how would you do it? Me, I would make it so it's just really easy to apply and cross the border, but you would have to apply. Like, I I would, I would still have a thing, but you, you just have to fill out a form so we know who you are and that you're not fleeing from justice or whatever. I don't feel like that's crazy to ask that.
0: Yeah, well, and it's interesting before when you are saying that kind of liberals and conservatives are both wrong when they hit an extreme on personal responsibility as far as hard work and its value and your circumstances and their value. I think they're also both wrong as far as government's role and politics's role in terms of this kind of uh i guess cultural management you know in in terms of oh what do we support what do we let be changed it seems like there's a liberal extreme where anything can change all the time no matter how objectively good or bad it is and then there's a conservative extreme where the government needs to manage what our culture should be and both of those things would be insane there's some kind of in the middle thing to be found And I think with personal responsibility and with culture and with all these other things, if we don't understand that as people we agree on a lot of the same things from jump, we just are divided on certain specific issues. If we don't understand that we agree on a lot of things together, then there's a mistrust that makes things like personal responsibility and cultural change impossible to navigate because we aren't operating from a place of trust and we aren't operating in a way where we're saying, oh, I can work with these fellow citizens on finding the happy medium that we want.
1: Well, and it's the presumption of bad faith. Yeah. It's the presumption that any any Republican talking about changing the health care plan, that it's because they want to kill millions of poor people. <laughs> and they just don't. I, this is my family. These are my friends. Like They just don't. To just end the conversation with conservatives want poor people to die liberals want poor people to have care, is their way of thinking is dirty, our way of thinking is clean, when the reality is these are subjects that experts bitterly disagree on.
0: And also in picking a side on that issue, it is so, it can be so tribal on both sides and so signal-based on both sides, especially because just as much as there's a pile of details and information on the side of don't make it government run and don't make it a publicly handled thing. There's the other pile of details on the other side of like these other Western democracies can run public health care for everyone. And unregulated corporations have consistently operated like robber barons for a lot of times in a lot of different cases in history. And it becomes a thing where neither side wants to deal with the other side's details at all. And so then then we just start signaling and we hunker down and we dig trenches and go to the mattresses and, and deal with it in the most disagreeable, least productive way.
1: Yeah, because what you can wind up doing is just supporting a principle, which is everybody should have health care, which I think everybody actually agrees with that. Yeah, right. Even if it was like a, somehow like scientifically, there was like an objectively good system, the lowest cost for everybody, the insures people. I feel like we would find a way one tribe or the other would find a reason to hate it because hating it is more important (laughs) than the policy. And this is kind of like common core, the common core, the public school curriculum that was developed during the Bush administration. The second Obama took office, Common Core became a conspiracy among communists to reprogram our children's mind. It became Ob- Obama's common, Obama rewriting the public school curriculum with their new communist math that doesn't even make sense. And my Facebook filled with these Common Core horror stories from public school teachers saying, look at what they're making us teach our children. It's like... This came about under a Republican administration with the Republican Congress to try to unify the curriculum among to modernize it nationwide. But the second there's a Democrat in office, our tribe hates it because hating it mattered more than whatever. Who knows what Common Core even is? Who can even describe it? It doesn't matter. We are now told to hate this. And therefore, we will hate it. And what we are watching right now with the Obamacare thing, all that's happening, the current compromise in Congress appears to be very minor, minor tweaks to the system that will allow them to rename it something other than Obamacare. Yeah, right. (laughs) Where we get the same benefits, but it doesn't have to be—they can tell— Conservative voters, oh, we we threw Obamacare in the garbage. It's it. There's no remnants of it left. This is Trump care, even though it's like ninety six percent the same. That's all they want, because the actual policy was fine. Gosh, that being able to stay in your parents' plan through college and into your your mid twenties, like that helps a lot. Nobody, yeah. there's nothing like communist about that. There's nothing. There's nothing inherently that, that violates any of these conservative principles, but. The tribe hates it because it came from Obama and it colloquially started being called Obamacare and that's enough. And so we mainly, this is all an exercise, a year-long exercise in just rebranding it. And then it will be fine until there's another administration.
0: You see the same thing with jobs numbers in a basic way. There's a Texas Republican named Kevin Brady who's chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. And across this year... When monthly jobs reports come out for jobs numbers under Trump, they will often be pretty similar to jobs numbers under Obama, partly because, as we've said on a previous episode of the podcast, the president doesn't really impact the economy nearly as much as people think. But on social media, people have been grabbing his... It was the same chairman of the House and Ways, Ways and Means Committee in and 2017, this guy, Kevin Brady, and he will say a completely different message about matching jobs numbers, because now they're under Trump. So this gain of a few hundred thousand jobs is a sign that the economy is surging back. And when it happened under Obama last year, the exact same thing statistically, he'll say, well, the economy is just not picking up enough because he's killing the economy with his regulations and his other qualities I won't be specific about. you know, And it's just because of pure tribal gamesmanship and partisanship.
1: When in reality, none of these problems have gone away. We have very low unemployment because of two reasons. One, a lot of people have just checked out of the economy. Yeah. And two, there's plenty of part-time and gig-type jobs out there. If you want to be an Uber driver, you can do it. And if you want to work in a service job that has no health insurance or has, you know, has no 401k or anything, that, those jobs are out there. Those jobs are plentiful. So if you want to say there's so many job openings they can't find people to fill them, that's true. But (laughs) those jobs pay like yeah they pay like nine dollars an hour and they don't and they have rotating shifts and you don't know how many hours you're getting. Like the problem is still underemployment. It was a problem under Obama, and our people went on and on about you know 10 million jobs gained under Obama. He really brought the country back from it. The trend is the same. It's not the president's fault. It's not Trump's fault. It's not Obama's fault. The economy changed to these jobs that are inherently less secure. Unions went away because the public hates unions now. It has decided that we've rejected that whole idea. So you have no bargaining power. Right. And yeah, there's work. You can work if you do work. And if you work two or three of those jobs, you can do okay. If... You can get the second job to work around the fle- the flexible hours of your previous job when you have no idea when you're going to be working and what shift you're going to be on. And if your second job is fine with working around your first job, which they won't be, so you can put whatever face on you that you want. But the real problem hasn't gone away. The, the broad trend hasn't gone away. But it, it, we want it to be a tribal thing where it's, oh, yeah, Obama ruined the uh, economy because he got rid of all the manufacturing jobs and replaced them with jobs at Starbucks. And then now Trump is in office is like, ah, he's going to bring, he's somehow going to bring the coal. He's going to bring the coal jobs back somehow. He's going to, he knows it's not true.
0: They're roaring back. They already is.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The people in Congress know it's not true. They know that you're not going to reverse automation. That's not going to happen, but this is to bring it back to the central point of the conversation we're having the difficulty in solving these problems for real is in this tribalism because there's probably things that need to be done to try to, there may be areas where America does need to be a little bit more protectionist and keep jobs from fleeing so quickly or something, uh, my big thing I've expressed on previous podcasts, it seems like we should be spending a lot more money to train people in different industries. It seems like we should be spending a lot more money to help people move You know, to Mm -hmm. incentivize them because people who can't move away from Flint, Michigan, because they're stuck in a house that now has no value, but that they paid $200,000 for, you know, that that house now they could put on the market for $20,000. Nobody's going to buy it. Like they're stuck. It feels like that is one of the things where I think the government's job should be, which is to try to help create soft landings a little bit and help people be more versatile, help people change careers so that when these changes naturally come to the economy, they're all—they're not just out on their own. Where we kind of just abandon people now, but none of my Republican family back home would agree with that. Like that sniffs to them like, well, yeah, but you're rewarding people who plan their lives poorly. You know, why can't they pick themselves up by their bootstraps and and uh, go out in the moment they found out that a lot of that job training money is going to like. Uh, how do I phrase it? Like people in the inner city, <laughs> what they would do, what Fox News would do, is they would find one example of somebody taking their job training money and spending it on drugs, and say, right. "See, see, it's not worth investing in these people. It's it's all a big waste of money." If Donald Trump proposed that same same program based on the Coal Miner Rescue Act, here's a government program to retrain coal miners to do other jobs in. That where there's actually a future in it, physical therapy, computers, whatever they can do, I think they would embrace it wholeheartedly. I think that yeah. if we get President Bernie Sanders three years from now and he proposed that it, that is communism.
0: <laughs> yeah, it really seems like it. And when you say Fox News finds one example, it would be literally one example. It would be a single human being out of 320 million Americans. That's all it would take. They'd just broadcast them every day.
1: Right, because that's it's the same issue we talked about before with the need to put a face on a problem to make you sympathize with it. If they want to make you hate somebody, it's the same technique.
0: And to round this all out, like, what do we? What can we do as people when we're faced with our own aversion of germs and our own media making us more scared of everything? I feel like just simple awareness of it goes a long way. Maybe there, maybe there's other things we can do too.
1: That I feel like. Has helped me. Yeah, me too. I'm a very self-critical person. That's kind of my personality. Like I constantly feel like I'm not working hard enough or I like I, I kind of dwell on mistakes and things like that. So when people told me, like, well, you know, you're actually really racist. You know, you like when I go to college and people hear the jokes I'm making and they're like offended. At first, there's like a knee-jerk reaction. Like, well, no, you're the one who's wrong. You're just a stick in the mud. <laughs> These jokes are hilarious, it, but because I kind of hate myself a lot, I was able to <laughs> like look back and, and it, one thing that I did like by moving away from that area, I kind of now am like I, I talk very derisively about those neighborhoods, and those small towns that I'm from, and I did that to like separated myself. Separate myself is like well, I left that part of me behind, like I left the racist part of me i left the very like homophobic part of me like that the person i was like into through college like i've i moved away and left that and became a different person that is something that was kind of unique to my personality though that i i enjoy criticizing myself out of self-loathing so that helped (laughs) that helped me change a little bit like donald trump's not going to change because donald trump is successful if once someone is doing works It's really hard to talk them out of it. And if you have someone whose entire pride comes from being white, like I may not have done anything in my life, but I am from a long line of heroic people who built America. How do you talk them out of their pride? How do you tell them, you know what, no, this is just a dumb superstition based on the fact that you, you mistrust foreigners for very primitive, savage reasons, like you're actually the, the savage here, you're actually the the backward, primitive person, act, you know, acting like out of tribalism, why would they ever listen to you? So I think what we have found as a culture, once we invented mass media, you know, and radio came along and all of that, what we have tried to do is, through our popular culture, convey a lot of very positive faces of these things and so that's how you get the Cosby show in the 80s you've got you know a, a black family who's upper class he's a doctor you know and trying to say see they're they're people too they want they want the same things you want you know and then in the 90s having the first openly gay characters on TV and I think did help accelerate like the acceptance yeah. of gay marriage happened at lightning speed. I think that's something that that's a change that came out very quickly that could not have happened that fast in any previous era.
0: When you said earlier that occasionally people around you would be like, you know, I like that, Ellen. It's a it's that's a huge step. It really makes a difference.
1: But right. And so I do feel like we've done a good job of helping people bridge those gaps Because we are a less racist country than we were a hundred years ago. We are a less homophobic country. We are a less misogynist country and and world than we were a hundred years ago. It's just that there's always profit to be made by appealing to this other thing. Yeah. So you will still have movies where the bad guy, he can't just be bad. He's got to be like ugly. He's got to be deformed somehow. His face has got to be burned or he's got an eye patch or something. He's got a hook for a hand. There's something weird about him. He's not right. You know, he's defective somehow or in Lord of the Rings where the bad guys are just these orcs, just these filthy spitting hissing things where they are evil because of what they are that they didn't join a movement. They were born orcs. It's not their fault, but it's, it's still a lot of money to be made by like, There's the monsters. They're filthy. We, the band of the last clean people, have to save civilization. And that's still a really powerful message. And as long as people buy tickets, Hollywood will still make that. News outlets will still appeal to it. And what we have found recently in the last 10 years from the Obama era into the Trump era is that when you decide in the mainstream spaces that certain Certain things are no longer allowed to be discussed, like thoughts are no longer allowed to be entertained. Like you don't see on the nightly news like an anti-abortion sentiment. Like you don't see like an anti-refugee sentiment on CBS, ABC, because it's just not that's not up for debate. When you completely expunge that, you create other outlets that will come that will be much much worse because this is where all of those people will gather and they just get more and more radical with time to the point where it's they feel like it's almost a relief it's like yes finally someone is talking about immigration finally someone is talking about these refugees and letting isis into the country finally so now there's no balance there. If you just try like watching Fox News, even what's supposed to be like the lighthearted part of Fox News, like the the 6-hour long morning show, that's supposed to be like the thing you watch when you're making kids breakfast and it's all about athletes you know disrespecting our flag. Like that's they they'll cover that like 3 hours a day now. It's like these people disrespecting America and ISIS is coming, you know, has killed another, has beheaded another person in this country, and, and you know, another black-on-white crime, this gang of thugs attacked uh, this tourist family. It's just terrifying. But this is what is new in my mind, is that you've got, you now have, like, websites that are, like, openly white nationalist and they're big. Like, there's a lot of people there. I don't know if just this is the internet maturing and these people finding out how to organize or if this is just what we should have expected after eight years of Obama, these people feeling like they didn't have a voice. You get like the ugliest possible manifestation of it because they they just feel like they've got to be more and more extreme to survive. I don't know. And so the narrative is that, well, the whole world is falling apart. All of the progress is being lost. I don't think that's true.
0: Well, also, I feel like it's partly a product of it's never been easier to build a platform. It's not the past decades where there were a couple of channels and a couple of newspapers and you kind of needed to break into one of those if you wanted anybody to see your stuff. Otherwise, you're just like hand printing it and physically giving it to people or something. And now... Anyone can build a website like we run a website with a couple dozen people. And in the past, you couldn't reach millions of readers with a couple dozen people who just decided to make a thing. So I I think like there's partly a media diversification aspect of it. But you're also right that I think there's a lot of people who decided they needed to give a voice to how different we are and how angry we should all be at each other, even though I don't believe in that.
1: That's where I would leave it, is that no matter how the technology changes, no matter how the culture changes, no matter how we build different ways to communicate with each other, the past casts a very long shadow over everything we think, and that stuff doesn't go away, so that's why I write articles about this subject because I think the more you know that this is influencing, influencing you, the more it will help. I just worry that Only a certain type of person even reads that type of article. (laughs) So maybe it's self-defeating that I guess the more we know and the more, as much as you hate to hear that something you believe is like an honestly held belief that it's actually a prejudice born from some dumb thing that happened when you were a kid or that happened to your great, great grandparents, it's hard to hear that. But the more you know about it and kind of face that information head on and try to like, well, do, are there ways I act? that are irrational and could there be reasons for it? I feel like that can only help.
0: It's a good thing. Germs are fine, everybody. It's going to be all right. Folks, that is the episode for this week, and let's dive right into our footnotes. We're linking off to Jason's column, Four Creepy Things That Secretly Control Your Personality, linking off to a slew of other things we talked about. Brett picked out the historical tale of the bath riots, which is maybe the most extreme American example of one group thinking another group needs aggressive delousing, including gasoline baths, because germs. It's amazing, great pick by him, and we're linking to an NPR article and an episode of The Dollop all about that. And of course, no footnotes would be complete without a link to the new book, What the Hell Did I Just Read? by David Wong, available wherever fine books are sold. Treat yourself to one of the best new novels of the year, and I'm saying that in a stacked year for literature. What else is stacked? The panel for our live Cracked podcast this coming November 11th at UCB Sunset in Los Angeles. That's this Saturday. You can see me, Cody Johnston and Katie Golden from Cracked and comedians Rivers Langley and Siobhan Thompson all getting together to talk about everything in the world that's happened in politics that is not tied to Donald Trump. It turns out While the president has been a dumpster fire, there's been an entire country and 50 state governments and all kinds of other processes going on. We're going to talk about the good, bad, and everything else of that, and we're going to have jokes and have fun doing it too. Still a few tickets left. Get your tickets at sunset.ucbtheatre, that's theater with an R-E, .com. We'll also link off to it in the footnotes so you can see us live in Los Angeles. You can also dress like us. We have t-shirts for the show along with Cracked Pins at PodSwag.com. You can also find our other podcasts wherever you listen to this one. Cracked Movie Club is diving into its John Hughes month for November. Kurt Vonnegay's will be back with a new episode soon. And our newest show, Cracked Mailbag, answers your questions every Friday. If you have a Cracked Premium subscription, go to Cracked.com slash subscribe to get one of those. And hey, big news that you get because you stuck around for the footnotes. We have a new podcast launching next week. It is called Best Episode Ever. It's a show where we find the absolute best episode of all of the best TV shows ever made, hosted by Brett Rader and Carmen Angelica. It's coming to you November 14th. The feeds will be up very soon and we'll link off and broadcast them on all the cracked social and so on. Once they are, we can't wait for you to hear this show, it's going to start off with Friends, featuring Katie Willard. We'll have a lot more about it on next week's Cracked Podcast, and you can subscribe and check it out then. And speaking of the Cracked Podcast, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Hear them on Daptone Records. This episode was edited by Chris Souza. It was engineered and co-produced by Best Episode Ever host, Brett Raider. Find Brett at Brett, R-A-D-E-R, on Twitter. And if you love this episode, oh, man, that's a great thing. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. The thing we use from our phone on the toilet, even though, come on, go Roos. You can find me keeping it clean on Twitter under the name at Alex Schmidty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I'm glad to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcasts. So how about that? Talk to you then. Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. I'm here with my co host, Frank Santo Padre. Please welcome to the show, Norman
1: Lear, <laughs> who happened to make it also to Gilbert Gottfried and his podcast. Ira Klaas. Very happy to be here. This is Joyce Van Patten. Hi, this is Frank Conniff. Hi,
0: I'm Dee Wallace. Hi, this is Tom Bergeron. Hey, everybody, this is Tommy James. Hey, I'm Clint Howard. Hi there, I'm Jackie the Joke Man Marley. Hi, I'm Bobcat Goldthwait. I don't do that voice anymore. Well, I guess if you gave me money. You're listening to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. What an introduction. It gave me shit chills. <laughs> <laughs> damn, damn, damn. <laughs> Thank you, Johnny Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast, available on iTunes, Earwolf, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts can be heard. New episodes every Monday, with bonus episodes on Stitcher Premium every Thursday. Go to gilbertpodcast.com for more info. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit
1: earwolf.com.